Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Anand Jarid Haradas, is the author of the new book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. The book is a piercing examination of how the global elite have co-opted our mechanisms of social change. And this trend manifests itself in many ways, including the belief that market forces are more important than government in affecting change. One can also see evidence of this trend seeping into our culture as well through the ideal that, quote, doing well by doing good is a highest order of cultural attainment for those seeking to uplift humanity. The book is an extremely challenging and at times discomforting critique of a trend that I've witnessed and certainly been on the periphery of. I'm sure many people listening to the show have been to conferences like the World Economic Forum or Aspen Ideas Fest or the Clinton Global Initiative, which the book argues exemplifies an approach to social change that ends up entrenching a highly inequitable status quo. The book has a chapter more or less dedicated to UN Week. This is the week in September where heads of state come to New York for the opening of the UN General Assembly and also attend all manner of side events. And we kick off discussing the significance of many of these events to his overall thesis. I must say, this book has definitely struck a nerve. It was published just a couple weeks ago, and it's already number six on the New York Times bestseller list. And I think this conversation will help you understand why we can expect this book to be so impactful. So here is my conversation with author Anand Jirid Haradas. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My book is about the privatization of change, the privatization of our idea of social change, of changing the world, of making a difference in other people's lives. And the thesis in a nutshell is that this idea of how we affect the world and make it better has kind of been co-opted and conquered by the private sector and and the people who've made their money in the private sector. Um, And so that shows up in many places. It shows up in college campuses where the idealism of young people is is kind of co-opted and diverted towards McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. It shows up in our culture where thinkers who are critical of wealth and power end up being marginalized and and thinkers who kind of trim the sails of their arguments and spout more winner-friendly theories are 
given the exalted status of thought leaders, which are kind of winner-friendly thinkers. And sure enough, it shows up in UN Week because in its origin, um, UN Week epitomized, you know, the idea of the public solution of public problems and the the coming together in this kind of extraordinary thing that we all take for granted and we all grumble about the traffic. But I actually never grumble about the traffic as a New Yorker because I, it never ceases to amaze me that we live in a world in which 150 or 180 or however many heads of state who, you know, who some of whom democratically and others of whom not democratically represent the people of the world can all come together and be in a building and like try to figure things out. And that is a great public act. These people who represent their publics coming together to kind of speak as a global public. And being a, a space of genuine public spirited world changing, UN Week was bound to be uh, captured by the forces seeking to privatize change. And so I became interested in how it was that this thing that originated with these public actors solving problems and, and thinking through issues through this public body, how it is that um, so much private and business-oriented and philanthropic activity became barnacled onto UN Week, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you uh, just look at the the schedule that people kind of now have during UN Week, the public stuff is like a very small part of the agenda, and there's now a Bloomberg thing, and there's a Citibank thing, there's a JP Morgan thing, and there's a you know this law f- corporate law firm has an event, and you know it's a it's a like a athletic footwear company that has an event to empower girls in Africa. They're not even sure where in Africa it is, but but they believe in empowering girls there. And the whole like UN Week has become incredibly corporate mm-hmm. and incredibly dominated by rich people trying to make a difference, and incredibly dominated by money. So can, can I, I just maybe like like stop you there because there, there there's a couple of of, of trends I'd, I'd I'd want to unpack. I mean, it is true that that you know at its core, UN Week, the opening of UNGA was all about for years and decades, you know, heads of state talking to each other. Uh, but one sort of trend in recent years, I think, alongside the trend you're describing, has actually been a democratization of action around UN Week. They're trying to get kind of like the the global the the global goals, the sustainable development goals, sort of outside the halls of the UN and empowering sort of individuals around the world to do it. And this is kind of exemplified in things like I think the um, the 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 so the global citizen festival that you know that music festival now that tries to engage citizenry uh, around these goals. So I think a part of the trend is in fact a democratization of what's happening inside the UN to allow sort of individuals around the world to to get engaged around it. But part of it is is certainly the trend that you identify as well, which is like the corporatization, the co opting of a lot of these these goals. Well, I think they're related. One of the things that often happens is when you're trying to do something like democratize the global goals, often these public institutions, not least because we starve them of resources, um, are often not very good at democratizing these things. And they're often not very good at figuring out, you know, how to make them connect to people. And they often don't have the money to do that kind of market research and, 
you know, have the right ads and whatever. And so inevitably, no, I should they- say, perhaps like full disclosure here, the, the private foundation, the UN foundation, Ted Turner's philanthropy that supports most of my work is primarily engaged in what you just described, you know, supporting the UN in doing that kind of work that you just discussed. Yeah. And so, you know, I think often what happens is these people with these public oriented goals will turn to, um, you know, the Taco Bell Foundation, which was active at the last in 2016 when I, when I was covering UN week, you know, there was like the social good summit. They were promoting the global goals and like Taco Bell, the Taco Bell Foundation was there like helping them with that because, you know, presumably Taco Bell is a lot better at making things catchy and saleable to people than, than, you know, some of the folks who've been marketing the global goals. So, so I think those things are, those trends are linked. And I just became interested in how that happened. And one of the things that I found that I actually, um, you know, I was reporting on my focus in this final chapter of the book was, um, the final substantive chapter was, um, CGI and the, and the Clinton Global Initiative and the last, the last CGI, um, that was going to happen. And so I reported from there and uh, it, it was as I was doing that reporting that people started to tell me, you know, it was really Bill Clinton who played a huge role in helping this kind of privatization of UN week happen um, because it was he who, um, when he decided to, to have the first CGI, um, who'd kind of had this idea of all the heads of state are coming um, so they can work on things, but that's kind of a draw for other people to come. And what if we get rich and powerful people um, to come to the same place those heads of state are coming, and we get them all to make these pledges, and we get them to to um, commit to doing some work together for the global good, and get them to meet, you know, other leaders and whatever. And, and his whole model of partnerships and pledges kind of took root, and. What started to happen inevitably, whether or not it was his design, and it probably was not his design, was that, you know, it just became a, a, a kind of space on the calendar every year where a lot of rich and powerful people were in the same place, had some heads of state, a lot of bureaucrats, and then a lot of money people, either philanthropists or operating business people or others. Um, and once they're all there, it, that space in the calendar just becomes a space for Everything those people are interested in doing. The, it, it, the agenda is not going to be confined to the original uh, invitation, which is to solve these complex global problems. They're going to do that, but they're also going to do deals. Entrepreneurs are going to try to raise VC money. You know, people are going to try to network. People are going to try to, to, um, do well by doing good. And one of the big themes of Winners Take All is this notion of doing well by doing good. And I think UN Week, as the Clinton example spread, you really started to see others. Bloomberg is kind of carrying the mantle with his big forum this year and last year. Um, and But there's a million. I mean, there's now like mm-hmm. so many of these private events for the public good that have yeah. barnacled themselves onto UN Week. So, and- so I mean, I, I was at that very first CGI in 2005, um, and it, it was wild. I mean, I remember I was, like, having a lychee martini with, like, Elvis Costello and, like, Shimon Perez was somewhere, like, lurking around. Like, it was, was like, an amazing convening of different people all kind of gathered around this idea that if they partner with Bill Clinton, they can advance great big causes. And, and it seemed – it was very optimistic, and and – 
you know, it's worth pointing out they did achieve like a, a lot of good. Uh, and but I, I do accept the criticism that over the years it morphed into something that it did not, I think, initially set out to 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 be. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I and I, I I I agree and write in the book that it did a lot of good. Um, I think what I'm interested about it from a cultural point of view is the way in which solving public problems when it's taken into the hands of private people and private spaces that are less accountable, um, how the opportunity to, to do well um, becomes hopelessly intermingled with the opportunity to do good so that it sometimes becomes hard to identify where one ends and the other begins. And so, you know, you have people and it's, this is like well known and I've spoken to many of these people privately who tell, like you have people who understand that, you know, doing a, doing a very public donation to a particular organization in that, in that kind of privatizing UN week will help those people. And it will also help lubricate a deal that they're trying to make with a particular government to, you know, get some kind of valuable concession. And both are true. There will be people helped. There will be some lives saved and perhaps a slightly corrupt deal that could have gone to an RFP, but won't go to an RFP and will just be handed to the billionaire in question will, will happen. And I think, you know, when I was talking to Darren Walker, who runs the Ford Foundation, who was kind of describing what he has observed watching this develop, you know, he's, the, the problem with this is that you often end up with people fighting on both sides of the same war. So you end up with someone who philanthropically is roped into a project to, um, you know, help uh, people kind of beached by oil extraction in the Niger Delta or help, you know, the, 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 the corrupt politics that has, that has arisen in that area because of the distortions of petrochemical extraction. Um, you know, you have a, a philanthropist who's working to, or CSR program that's working to, to help solve some of the problems created by that. And the foundation may still be invested in the very company that is, causing that problem by doing petrochemical extraction in the Niger Delta. Um, when doing good and doing well start to, um, you know, become that like chocolate vanilla swirl, it becomes very hard to, to separate them. And they um, sometimes go well together and sometimes they end up kind of undoing each other in ways that are ironic and complicated. I mean, it seems that one of kind of the major themes of your book is this idea that, um, you know, market forces are always um, necessary in order to, to achieve some great global good, uh, great, great global good. And, and, you know, it, it seems in your interview with Bill Clinton that, that he articulates that point of view, I think, very, very well. Um, I kind of like wanted to, to run one example by you, one I was somewhat familiar with. You know, it, it involves the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, and this World Health Organization group called Unitaid. And basically what they've done is um, create a market for uh, pediatric AIDS drug. You know, there, there's no pediatric AIDS in wealthy countries because we figured out how to eliminate the transition of um, pregnant mothers to their children of, of HIV AIDS, but that's not the case in the developing world. Um, so you need to 
is where these, you know, pediatric AIDS drugs are, are rare and expensive. So they just kind of created a market. I'm um, using, you know, Bill Clinton's convening power and, and the World Health Organization's funding to create a, like a, a market around these, these pediatric AIDS drugs. Like what's sort of wrong with that example in, in your view? Like what's your kind of critique of, of taking that market oriented approach to solving that very kind of discrete niche problem? I think you're slightly misunderstanding the book. The, the, the book is not saying that each program done by rich people to help people is bad. That's not at all the argument of the book. The argument of the book is that a lot of these initiatives are good, are useful to help people solve some problem and at the margin make a real difference in people's lives, but that they are part and parcel often of rich people also fighting to defend the very system that is causing those problems, okay? So, you know, that program sounds like a great program, and it sounds like it's actually solving something that maybe would not be better solved in other ways. I don't know. I don't know the details of how that program works. But let sure, me say sure. this. I don't think you can donate to a program like that without asking yourself questions like, why is it that those countries are so poor? Why And what is my role in that, maybe? If you are a hedge fund trader, have you flash traded, like, commodities in ways that actually make that country's economy less stable? Often that's the case. Has your bank been one of the, like, you know, had these one of these vulture funds that, that kind of buys, you know, bad debt from these countries and then makes it, you know, makes them pressure to pay them unless they're going to, you know, change their sovereign rating if they don't, if they don't pay it back. A lot of, a lot of countries in the developing world the same countries probably helped by this program are, you know, are very aggressively um, targeted by big banks. Well, it, probably some of the donors of those banks end up donating to a program like this. The problem I'm talking about in this book is people fighting two sides of a war, talking out of both sides of their mouth, helping people through a program like this while refusing to examine their role in also being part of the problem. And again and again, I found people who are genuinely making a difference while also insisting on protecting their opportunity to keep making a killing in the same old ways and who are genuinely trying to change the world while being very adamant about their world not having to change. And so the question I would ask folks who support programs like this is not, is this a good program? I think that's very simple and in some ways lets them off the hook. The question is, what are their other involvements? And is their regular job, not their donation to such a program like this, is their regular job on the side of justice? Is their regular job um, making issues like that better or not? Um, I think- I, I don't disagree with you. I was just sort of um, putting that example to you in order to sort of draw out um, you know, your critique of, of sort of the systemic problems that you identify. And it seems what's, what's kind of like probably arguably to, to me, the, the most interesting, the most sort of piercing uh, part of, of your book was your description of how this notion of doing well by doing uh, good has sort of been culturally imbibed by a younger generation who now see it, you know, if you're a smart, idealistic young person, you want to start a business, you, you don't want to join the government. And that seems to be something that's, that's sort of the, the transformative uh, effect of the kind of cultural 
norms that that um, you know the the, the elite the, the, are, are trying to sort of impose on all of us. And the, you know your example of like Hillary Cohen, for example, is was is someone I could really like relate to, uh, and also sort of sort of made me feel a little sad. Like this is this is where we are. Yeah, I write about Hillary, who who and and her kind of years at Georgetown University, where she um, arrived with great idealism and great hopes of changing the world, and ended up with an internship at Goldman Sachs, and then later a job at McKinsey, and even she was kind of puzzled by how it happened, and. You know, the way it happened was um, what happened to her happened to, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of her classmates at Georgetown. And so there's this big question about why is it that idealistic young people so often get co-opted by corporate America? And it's precisely because they're told the story that you that you summarize, which is if you want to change the world now, you change it through business. Now, as with many bad ideas, there's a you know significant kernel of truth to it. It is true that in our age, and at certain problems, government has been ineffective and business has been effective. But again, you can't look at that without understanding the context of how business interests have waged a war on government in America over the last 30, 40 years that made government ineffective at certain things, that underfunded it, that you can't, you know, the, the, this is like the Fox... You know, the hen house had a guard and the fox bit the, the, the guard in the leg and the guard stumbles away and then the fox presents itself to the hens as the replacement. Well, you know, too bad you don't have a guard. Maybe I should guard the hen house. Well, yeah, but you bit the guard. And so the idea that government can't solve problems, first of all, it's less true than people say it is. The government, I mean, the United States is, an, is like a miraculously run country even in the moment where it's run by the worst person who's ever run it. Like... You don't ever think you go to a restaurant, you're not going to get sick. You don't, you know, when you, I put a car seat on for my kids in the car, it never occurs to me that's not properly been tested, you know. Um, like when you, the daily functioning of our stock market, our highway system, like our country works in a remarkable way and it's an amazing civilizational achievement to build, you know, often public space and public rules and, and a commons that actually works and takes a lot of the anxiety and stress of daily life off the table, things you have to worry about in other places. And, you know, we have undernourished and starved, frankly, um, our government for 30 or 40 years, led by, frankly, business elites. And, you know, you could trace it to like the Powell memo in the 70s, Lewis Powell before he went to the Supreme Court when he was still a kind of rep for business interests. Um, and then they have implanted the idea having, having allowed a lot of social problems to fester because of the government that they, that they denuded, um, having let those problems fester, they turn around and say, gosh, what a shame. All these social problems, such an ineffective government. What a shame. What a shame. Let me, uh, let me step in and solve this for you. Well, again, the actual solution, the actual program may be very helpful. Um, the, it's, it's when you zoom out and get the full picture of how they helped cause the problem and then reinvented themselves as the solvers that, that things get a little more complicated. So as you, you, you note in your book, as you say in your book, you know, the, the leaders of, in, in recent years of the U S government, the president Obama, president Clinton, leaders of like the most effective, you know, institution in the history of, of human civilization, they, they turn to, to the private sector. They champion public-private partnerships as solutions to 
public ills. Like, why why is that? Well, I think there's an interesting political story here. Of there's no question that the war on government originated and was waged by the political right. Okay, it was the political right who frontally and in many ways cynically tried to convince the mass of Americans that government entities designed to provide for the common welfare were actually the enemy of the common welfare and were the enemy of freedom. And, you know, institutions designed to kind of promote equality and protect people from the vicissitudes of fortune were kind of rebranded in people's minds by Reagan and in the UK, Thatcher and others as like being the problem, right? Government is not the solution, it's the problem. Um, however, as the political right has waged that argument, it has, in some ways, owned the cultural conversation in America. And there hasn't been, what didn't happen was an equal and opposite defense of government, defense of common things, defense of the public sphere from the left. Um, what ended up happening in many cases was a... Um, a kind of compromising mentality, you know, driven by p- certain political realities of, okay, well, you know, government's not all bad. Yes, it's, I'll concede, it's bloated. I'll concede, it's this, it's, I'll concede. A lot of conceding and then trying to make some limited case for government. And so the Democratic Party became the party of like, come on, government's not all bad. Like, here's a couple things it can do, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. definitely too much in many ways. And I think when you make that kind of milk toast defense in the face of a very strong onslaught, you're basically playing on the aggressor's terms. And instead of actually fighting for government, you had Bill Clinton saying the era of big government's over, even though he supported a lot of, you know, top-down government programs designed to help people, mm-hmm. but he also dismantled others. You have Barack Obama, who I think is probably in some ways to the left of Bill Clinton who nonetheless, um, when he created his first new office, the Office of Social Innovation, um, you know, its website said, top-down programs from Washington aren't how you make change anymore, right? That's a pretty remarkable statement from a liberal government, former community organizer. Um, in many ways, I think the Democratic Party in the U.S. allowed itself to play on the rights field, and that was a field in which government was presumed guilty until proven innocent. So if, if you are someone who wants to, you know, affect change in the world, reduce inequality, which, which I take it from, from your book and something I agree is, is sort of the single, single biggest social ill domestically and, and, and globally as well. Is there like a proper role for, for market forces for, for the kind of, um, you know, the private sector, what role can the private sector play in addressing the root cause of some of these problems? Number one, stop blocking the public sector from doing its job, okay? People in the private sector love to ask what they can do. You know the question they don't like to ask, Mark? What am I doing already mm-hmm. that I may have to stop doing, okay? So this is very simple. First step Ask, do an audit of what you're already doing before you in the private sector um, seek to create new initiatives and start new things and, and chip in and help out, okay? If you have a company, ask if you're paying people enough. 
You paying people enough? Because if you're not paying people enough, you are dumping externalities and social problems onto the society, and then you're swinging around by night to try to solve those problems. That's very inefficient, and it's immoral. So pay people more if you're not paying people enough. Are you paying your taxes? Or are you one of the many, many, many American, big American companies that finds a way to like not pay taxes in many calendar years despite billions of dollars in revenue? billions of dollars in profits. Do you use the double dutch with an Irish sandwich to evade taxes? Do you ha- use tax havens? Right? So that's something that you're already potentially doing. Stop doing that. Right? Are you, um, when, when the government tries to give people health care, um, were you on the side of those who thought that a lot of people should have health care? Or were you part of, you know, as the National Restaurant Association and other trade groups, pushing for, let's only give health benefits to people who work 30 hours a week or more, you know, which obviously immediately prompted many employers to give people 29 hours a week of work. Um, which, which side of that did you lobby on? When the government tries to regulate antitrust, do you let them figure out what's right for the public good? Or do you lobby and spend millions of dollars and try to get your, you know, former lawyer to be a federal trade commissioner so that you're protected against that kind of scrutiny, right? So a lot of people, like, let's, let's be real for a second. Instead of asking what good can we do, what is your involvement already? How are you contributing to inequality and our biggest social problems already? How are you already part of this? And start unwinding some of that complicity, number one. Once you have done that, and that's a lot of homework right there. But once you've done that, you might then turn to the question of what can you do? How can you step up? What programs could you create? And there, I would say the biggest thing is shift in two dimensions. If, because I think, frankly, in a more fair society, there would be less money to give away. But we, we live down here on Earth right now. And so how do you give that money better? Well, you, you give in ways that shift from giving a little back to actually giving something up. And you shift from crowding government out to crowding it in. So on the first, you know, you, 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 giving back is easy. Mm-hmm. You, you know. You this is why up. your book is such a useful, I think, tool to have um, ars- in, in, your, in one's arsenal as they uh, approach UN Week and, and this um, uh, and, and all these conferences that, that we're approaching. Can I ask, you know, your book is doing really well. Um, it's, it's something like six on the New York Times bestseller list last time I checked. Congratulations. Um, so it's obviously you struck a nerve with the public. Um, what are your plutocratic friends who you admit you have in, in, in the book and your fascinating afterward of the book as well? Um, what are they telling you privately uh, about your arguments about your book? What are you hearing from them? Have you lost friends over this book? I don't think I've lost friends over it. I think, you know, I mean, obviously I don't share private conversations on a public podcast, but I would yeah, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that generally speaking, that, that, that I would say generally there's been, you know, some people are silent, but in general, I have been blown away and overwhelmed and thrilled by the extent to which people implicated by this critique are willing to use this book to look at themselves. And I'm getting dozens of emails and messages a day telling me I am using this book to hold up a mirror to myself. And I think I'm a good person. I'm doing my best, but my impact investment fund, you know, invests in its other part of its business and a lot of dodgy things that have always made me uncomfortable. And this is like, this book's giving me space to explore that. Or I do really 
real grounded activist work working in a community, but we raised money from this billionaire and he imposed this condition on us. And I kind of said yes, because I wanted to fight for my people. And it's making me think about, could I have been more courageous? And could I have said, no, we're not going to do that. And we don't want your money. And could I have maybe held the line and still gotten the money anyway? Um, you know, again and again, it's making, I'm, I have, you know, these billionaires reaching out to me saying like, we don't want to give in a way that's not making change. Like, what can we do? And by the way, like, I'm not anybody's advisor. And I like often just say like, I'm glad you're asking these questions. I can't, you know, I, I, I don't have all those answers. I have tried to raise questions in this book and show people grappling with them and point towards ways of, of making the kind of change that would be, that would be real change and not the fake change that we've been, that we've been peddled, um, for, for much of the recent past. And I just have to say on like a personal level, this book has been like a valuable corrective and really, you know, challenging to me. I mean, I'm, I'm no plutocrat, but you know, I'm like, I've, I've been sympathetic to some of the, um, critiques that you identify in your book in the past. And, and this is just like something that I feel, um, is really an important corrective to some of the assumptions I, I had previously held. And it was revelatory and it was really interesting. And I encourage everyone to read it. You know, my, one of my, my first editors said, you know, the best books, you know, identify a trend and, and define it. And you, you certainly did. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful and glad that this book is doing so well. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Anand. Uh, like I said, yeah, this, this book definitely struck a nerve. I can expect uh, it will be extremely impactful as, frankly, we all reexamine our role in, in either entrenching a status quo that is so highly inequitable or just putting forward theories of change that don't rely exclusively on market forces. It's a good book. Impossible to summarize. Excellent book. Go buy it. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And as always, a big thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being a sponsor of the show. See you next time. Bye.